We'll be starting this evening with a really, or this morning with a familiar passage to us. John chapter 3, starting in verse number 14. And as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation that light, come, light is coming to the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the, cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. We're going to focus this morning on verses 14 through 16. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that as we look at your text this morning, for those who are here and have placed their faith in the rock of ages, for those who've placed their faith in you, that this time in this text may be a moment of great joy. Also, a, a, a time of great sobriety as we're reminded of what exactly it took for us to have hope in this wretched world. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone under the sound of my voice who's under the reading of your word this morning, who is lost without you, I pray that today you will make clear in their heart and mind their standing without you. May they see clearer than ever what it means to leave this world without placing their faith in you. We give thanks to you for all that you've done, Lord. We thank you for your love, the grace, and the mercy that you've bestowed upon us, Lord. I thank you for the Witten Place Baptist Church. I thank you for the opportunity to stand here and herald your word, Lord. I pray that this morning your name may be lifted up and all men be, may be drawn unto you. In Jesus' name, amen. We have returned to our study again this morning in the book of John. Well, if you remember, not last week, but two weeks ago when we came to our study in the book of John, we were introduced to a man by the name of Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was a, a member of the Sanhedrin, which, mean he, which means he was a ruler in the Jewish community. Nicodemus had, at this time in the beginning of chapter 3, came to the Lord and began to question the Lord about what all of these miracles meant for his nation. Last week we seen that Jesus wasted no time but began to explain to Nicodemus the greatest need that Nicodemus had was to be born again. But here again, we take off in our text this morning, 
continuing on in this conversation that the Lord is having here with Nicodemus. I want you to see here that even in this text, though there are many religions that say that Jesus Christ never claimed to be the Son of God, that Jesus Christ never claimed to be deity, in the most simplicity that we have before us, you can see that Jesus, uh, in your Bible mind, is this way, that the, the, the writing of Jesus is in red. And even here in our text this morning, as we read these words, even for in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Here in the text, as it continues to unfold, Jesus will clearly wipe away the questions from the eyes of Israel and present himself not only as the Messiah, but as the Son of God and also as God the Son. And as he continues on in this conversation with Nicodemus, don't, don't forget the actual physical setting of this situation. It was said that in the beginning of chapter 3 that it was in the time of darkness that Nicodemus came unto the Lord. As he came unto the Lord, there's an implication in verse number really 7 through 9 that there was a, a movement of the wind on this evening. And as this exchange began to continue on, the Lord is going to make another great explanation to Nicodemus not only to... I feel to explain something even deeper here, but also in verses 14 through 16, I believe the Lord is placing an urgency on this matter. Notice in verse number 14, and this is seen here, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. After the Lord has told Nicodemus about this matter in which he needed to be born again, the Lord has now moved on and, and brought Nicodemus' mind back to Numbers chapter 21 and verse number 6 where the children of Israel had fallen into sin. They had fallen into idolatry. And God had sent poisonous serpents into the camp and the serpents had begun to bite the people of Israel. And people were dying and people were crying out. And in, in this moment here, we know the story there in Numbers that God would have Moses make this serpent and raise the serpent up in the middle of the camp. And those who place their eyes upon the serpent, they would be cured. Literally, that which cursed them would end up being the cure for them. And even more, we see here in verse number 14 that as Jesus has already told Nicodemus that he must be born again, in verse number 14, we see the urgency of someone's need to get to Christ. Someone's need to look unto Christ. He says to them, and you can even imagine this, in Numbers chapter 21, when you read that passage, you don't find one time that after the people were bit with the serpent, that they were running around and saying, I need to wash those dishes in my house before I get this done, or I need to clean the house, or I need to do this, or I 
not need to do that. No, immediately after being bit, the only thing that was on their mind was being cured from the bite of the serpent. And here the Lord is taking the same emphasis and telling Nicodemus, you need to be born again. And it's one thing for us to herald to people, you need to be born again. But verse 14 adds the urgency from the Lord that it's time now to be born again, that it's time now to look to Christ. This isn't a time to wait over. This isn't a time to wander around your neighborhood. You have been bitten by the curse of sin and desperately in need of Christ. Even more in verse number 14, explain not only the condition of the issue, but it explained the urgency of the issue. And even more, this explains, uh, verses 14 through 16, explains the conditions of our issues, that we are in sin and in desperate need to be made right with God. But it's impossible for us to be, because all of our works, as Scripture says in Isaiah, is filthy rags. All of our works, there's nothing that we could do to make our way to heaven. We can't merit our way to heaven. You could be the nicest person in this world, give away all your money to feed the poor, and still die and go to a, a devil's hell, because this is the condition of those in sin. Death is sure, and eternity in hell is the consequence of sin. And by the way, all of that is the righteous judgment of God. But in verse number 14, he reminds them that the one who cursed them is the one who cured them. And in verse 15 and 16, here the Lord is reminding Nicodemus that the same one who cursed them, meaning the same one that they've came up short in front of, they have sinned against God. They have failed God's righteous standard. It is God's righteous judgment that sends sinful men to hell. But in the same manner, the one who cursed them became the cure for them because he provided the greatest gift the world has ever experienced, the gift of his own son. In verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Oh, that we would just look to Jesus. As Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 22 tells us, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is none else. Look at the beauty of this verse. I hope you don't take it for granted this morning. I know we, it's probably the most repeated verse in all of scripture, the most well-known verse, but it is the most powerful verse in the book, in, the, in all of scriptures, in the word of God for us. And definitely what I believe the most powerful book, word, verse in the book of John. But look at the beauty of this verse, the great expression of God's love. For God so loved. For God so loved. At the very beginning of this verse, we are introduced to the source of delivering love. For God so loved. No one in time and space or 
Whoever has ever dwelt in matter has ever put forth the amount of love that we have seen given to us this morning in this text. God alone is the source of this delivering love. There is no greater love that has ever been shown in this world by God. There has been many great gifts given in this world. One man said that Ted Turner once researched the amount, the greatest gift that was ever given, and it was to find out that it was $500 million. And to show that he loved even more, he promised to donate twice that amount to this nation. So he gave a hundred or a $1 billion to this nation. And though that might be a great gift, it might be great in numerical numbers, but it is not the greatest gift that has ever been given. Ted Turner missed it. The greatest gift that was ever given was in the love that God had when he gave his own son. It was God's love that set into motion the redemption plan. It was in the throne room of heaven. I can't even understand this. In the throne room of heaven, as God sat upon his throne and he looked down upon wicked humanity and seen them living in their wickedness, living against his righteous law, living against his rules, he in his heart was burdened to redeem humanity. As he looked upon people that mocked him, it was in his heart he burned to have fellowship with people that once mocked him. What love is this? But notice how different God's love is than ours. We're so shallow in humanity. We say, well, I will love you as long as you continue to do this for me. I will love you as long as you never cross me. I will love you as long as you never break this promise. But if you ever stop, it's over. This is the conditional love in the world. But in these first four words, for God so Love. We are brought to this baffling understand. I don't understand that how God will look down from heaven and see a whole wicked Danny who lied, who spoke ill of him, who betrayed him, who lived in a way in which it would say that he hated him. How God would look down from heaven with such love and send his son to die for me. Listen, we know even as we look upon our children, even if we have a, a hundred of them. None of us would be willing to spare our child for a person who spoke well of us, let alone someone who spoke ill against us. Yet, Scripture puts forth that God's love was willing to give up His only begotten Son for wretched humanity to be restored with fellowship with Him. For God so loved this is the author of love. This is the author of the redemption plan. He looked down upon fallen humanity in love. Now, this does not mean that when God looks down upon sin, it doesn't anger him, but it is to imply that God seemed the need greater than he did to have the desire to pour down righteous judgment upon humanity. Notice on our text here, he doesn't say, it only says for God, but he says, for God so loved. Now understand this word so here in the Greek comes from the word hutu. It doesn't mean much to you, but it is a powerful, uh, it is a powerful understanding in the Greek. 
It is to say in this manner, in this way. It is to say whatever proceeds or follows is because of. So when you say, for God so loved, it is to say that everything that comes after this is from the, it's from the source of the unmeasured intensity of God's love. You see, for God so loved. Now, what is the unmeasured intensity of God's love? For God so loved that he gave. You see, his love that he had produced, it was unmeasured. You couldn't put a parenthesis around it. Really, 66 books doesn't even begin to explain what God did when he developed the plan to restore fallen humanity. But he says, for God so loved, since everything that precedes these words is connected to the prior, understand what is being said here, is that God so loved, he lets us know that the very action of Jesus laying down his life was all a consequence of God's love. For God so loved, but it doesn't end there. We're introduced to another statement. For God so loved the world. This is to whom God's love was for. The world. It is to say that God's love wasn't specifically for the Jewish nation. God's love wasn't just for the Americans. It wasn't just for the Indians. It was that God's love was shed abroad. It was for, as the verse will soon to say, for the whosoever. God's love wasn't just for a, a specific group, a specific community. I seen just the other day, they were talking about this rich actor. I won't mention his name to give him any credence, but on the news they were talking about now that he's wealthy, He's given back to his people. He's given back to his community. He wants to look out for his group. And so it is to say, with all the kings and presidents and rich people of the world, oftentimes when they look out for people, they look out for their own people. When they look out for uh, their nation, or when they, something good comes, they want their nation to have it, their group. They're exclusively looking out for their own. It is the selfish humanity of our own hearts that we tend to look out for our people. But notice God's love. God's love as he sits upon the throne wasn't just for the Jewish people. It wasn't just for uh, the Indians. It wasn't just for these people. It was that for God so loved the world. It is a beautiful statement and truth that even 2,000 years later, here at the Winton Place Baptist Church at 4600 North Edgewood, we can read this statement, for God so loved the world, and be filled with joy, and have great understanding that a king 2,000 years ago would die on Calvary's hill for me. And we can only come back to one thing. What love is this? For God so Love the world, but understand even more his love was for the world. But understand this that there was only one act for the entire world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God so loved the world that he gave the greatest gift that has ever been given. 
I know we just passed the Christmas season and there's much to be said about the Christmas season, but uh, all kinds of excitement was filled about gifts that people received. Realize this, the greatest gift that has ever been given was not found underneath a pine tree that drops needles over your house and ruins your vacuum. The greatest gift you ever found or this world has ever experienced wasn't given to you on your birthday. The greatest gift was in, the God, in God giving his son. He gave to a rebellious generation. He gave to a heartless nation. He gave to a wicked world. But look, look, look at the magnitude of this gift. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. His only begotten sons. Son, there are no words in the human language to express the magnitude of the reality of this gift. He gave his only begotten son. He gave the one whom when we studied in the first chapter, remember that when John Jesus came and John baptized him. And when John baptized him, Jesus, the, the clouds would roll back. A, a dove would descend down and say, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He gave him. He, he gave the one whom scripture says that he put all things in his hands. He gave the one, the only begotten son, the one who, according to the book of Philippians, says that he gave a name which is higher than any other name. That's the one he gave, the one whom, according to John chapter 1, the one we seen that he dwelt in all eternity with harmony with God, the one who has always been with God, God the son, the only begotten son. He gave him for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now, understand this. He didn't just give him as an object lesson of love. It's not what happened. He didn't just give him son to say, see, look how selfless of a king I am. Look how selfless of a God I am. I would give my son for you as an object lesson. It's easy to say such a thing. It's different to do it. He gave his only begotten son. He would not be the object lesson, but he would be the object that would receive the punishment for our sins. Isaiah chapter 53 and verses 5 and 6 says, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Hear me. God gave his son to receive the punishment that was our punishment. But notice that he doesn't say here that he gave his only son, but that he gave his only begotten son. Now, this isn't to be confused with the Old Testament, that Abraham begat Isaac and Isaac begat Jacob and so on and so forth. This is not speaking that God begot 
Jesus. That's not what the text is putting before you here. The text, the word here, begotten in the Greek, comes from the word monogenesis, which is to say this. It is to say that he is unique. He is the only one, that there is no one else like him. He wasn't literally God's son in the fact that God had begotten him, but in the aspect that he was unique to who he was. God gave his only begotten son. Even more, he was not only unique, but his uh, purpose was for the Uh, for the salvation of those who will put their faith in him. He received the punishment for our sins. God's only begotten son, Jesus Christ, was, uh, was given to be treated far worse than anyone ever would be treated. But understand, he did it because why? Why did Christ do this? Because he knew his father's love for us sinners. And in committing to this plan, the greatest opportunity this world could ever experience would be given. Where do we see that? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever. It's the greatest opportunity the world has ever been given. The whosoever. Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. A door of opportunity had been made open through what God had done in giving of his son. That sinful man could be made right with God. What what an opportunity that's far beyond our understanding. That in the giving the gift of his, the sending of his son, that whosoever would be made right with God, no longer the object of his wrath. This opportunity would make the most Wretched, vile sinner have an opportunity to be made right with God. Yet, notice in this, in this great verse, it is of great simplicity, yet there is a great restriction. Notice the text. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth, there it is, great simplicity. What does it take for a man to be made right with God? Belief. It doesn't say here in our text, in order to be made right with God, you have to summit the hill of Mount Everest. Many of us would fall to the wayside and may not even try. It doesn't say that you have to give all your finances away. It doesn't say that you have to vow the vow of poverty and like the monks do and stand on one foot for 20 days so that you can have two minutes of conversation with God. It says here, believe. This is a message of great simplicity. It's a message of hope with great simplicity. What does it take to be saved? That we believe in Jesus Christ, that he's the son of God and all that he was given for in this life. Yet understand, in the simplicity, there is a great restriction. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him, in, in him, this is, the, this, is the great, this is the great restriction. Access to God is narrow. It doesn't say whosoever believeth in Muhammad. It doesn't say whosoever believeth in Joseph Mormon. It doesn't say whosoever believeth in Gandhi or Buddha. It says in him, in Christ. Now, 
whoever believes in Christ, though, the text says that there lays a great opportunity. What is this great opportunity that we have? What is this great privilege that's put before us? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him, what? Should not perish. The Lord is telling Nicodemus, for those who place their faith in me, they will never have fear of perishing. Now, this doesn't mean so to say that they will never die. It's not speaking of that. Of course, men will die. We're all going to die one day. But there lies a great promise for those who have, who have placed their faith in him that they will experience genuine salvation. It is to say, that this word perish is really referencing annihilation, not death. The word perish is, is referencing the final judgment in the end, not death in this physical body, but annihilation that in the end, when death and hell is cast into the lake of fire, we shall not go. We will not perish for those who've placed their faith in him. Notice here, though, the grand alternative for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Here's the grand alternative. For those who place their faith in him, what's waiting for us is, is not a life of punishment. It's not a, a life of agony, but the alternative is that we have been separated, that we have been set apart. You see, the great difference in humanity today, regardless of what the world says, it's not whether you're white or black. It's not whether you're male or female. It's not whether you're Indian or Hispanic. The great difference in the world is saved and lost because in this world there are only two classes of people those who are doomed to perish and those who have been saved by the lord and there's the difference there's not this is the only difference in this world between the two yet notice the great certainty here for god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but but have everlasting life. Look at this great certainty here. He didn't say, but those who've placed your faith in him, you've been put into a select group that you might have the opportunity to have everlasting life. It didn't say that you would come down to the final four. It, it, the grand alternative here and the great certainty we have is for those who have placed their faith in him. The Lord speaking here gives us the promise that we will have everlasting life. What, what is a message of hope like this? What a, what a, I couldn't imagine what was going through Nicodemus's mind as the Lord began to peel back this for Nicodemus and explain to him with great urgency that not only do you need to be born again, but you need to be born again now. You've been bitten with the curse of sin. And so the grand reality is brought to us in this text as John continues to 
point out and draw people to the reality that we must place our faith in Christ. In this portion, he brings us to this understanding that according to Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, we are all under the curse of sin. And it's one thing to go through life knowing what the word of God says that you need to be born again. But Jesus, so to say, further moved on with Nicodemus and said, by the way, Nicodemus, this is with great urgency. You can't live your life saying, well, before I die, I'm going to I'm going to get things right with God. Before I die, I'm going to get saved. Before I die, I'm going to do this, that and the other, because you don't know when you're supposed to die. You don't know when the Lord is going to remove you from this earth. So the call for urgency is to repent now and believe the gospel. And in this, we have this great promise of confidence, this this grand alternative. While we come to the understanding by placing our faith in him that many are going to perish and die and go to hell, but we are brought to the understanding faith in him alone is what prevents us from spending eternity in a place called hell. But then we're given this grand promise that we're going to have everlasting life. Now, I don't know about you, but everlasting life doesn't sound so excited in this wretched world. Just watching the news, I couldn't imagine what the news was going to hold in another thousand years if the Lord doesn't come. But I'm not banking on what's going to happen a thousand years from here. I'm banking on what happened December 28, 2008, when I placed my faith in him and the Lord saved me. This is the great hope for the world. This is the only alternative to make people new. You can't reform a person. You can't, uh, you can't, uh, what do they call that? Uh, you can't give a person a therapy. For you give therapy to a person for 30 years, they go get released. We've seen this all the time with our wretched prison system. They say they've been in therapy for 20 years, come out and do the same act all over again. Why? Because there is a problem in them. The world needs to be transformed. And the only way they're going to be transformed is by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this text, Lord, and the opportunity again to be here in the book of John. Lord, I, I pray that you'll be with us even this evening, Lord. Um, I'm excited to hear as you put the words in Brother Evan's heart to preach to us this evening. Lord, I pray that you'll be with us as we continue to labor for you, Lord, and as we move forward here as a one unit to bring glory for you, to you, uh, out of this church. Lord, I pray that you'll, Lord, I pray that you'll just be with us. In Jesus' name, amen.